Keyboard Kimura podcast is brought to you by OneBone. If you're a bigger guy like me, chances are you've had problems finding shirts and gear that fits properly. The length is there, the sleeves are too wide, and the fit is all boxy. The sleeves are good, the shirt is a little too short, meaning your belly or your butt sticks out, which nobody likes. OneBone is the answer. The gear is made of 95% cotton and 5% spandex, meaning you get a little stretch and it fits right in all the right places. There's length to cover your gut and your butt with a number of different designs, styles, and colors to give you a complete wardrobe of good-looking gear that makes you feel comfortable and stylish every day. And as a supporter of this podcast, OneBone is offering you 10% off your next purchase with the promo code ESK10. That's my initials, E-S-K, all capitals, and the number 10. Just go to their website, onebonebrand.com, check out all the gear, Figure out your size with their terrific sizing guide and get yourself into some fresh new gear this summer and become a part of the growing One Bone community. One Bone, the biggest brand. For the second straight week, things ended in anticlimactic fashion. It's Sunday, July 24th, and these are the next day takeaways on Keyboard Kimura. Welcome, everybody. We've got video. And we've got a lovely backdrop. We've got a lovely overlay, courtesy of the one and only Harry Powell, who is seated in London town to my my right on the screen, I guess. Left, right. I can, I can never I can never tell. Yeah, my actual left side, but right when I'm looking at it. I am a Spencer Kite, of course. These are the next day takeaways, talking about UFC London part two, which kind of just, you know. I tweeted out the kind of about last night about these fights recap and said, sometimes when you try to recapture the magic of a beautiful night, things just go awry through no fault of your own. And that really to me is what, what Saturday felt like. Everything looked wonderful. There was the opportunity to recreate this magical night from March. And it really kind of, aside save for a couple of performances, which of course we will get into, it kind of just fell flat. Just speaking in general, before we go into fights themselves and and specific things, what were your, what was your main feeling, your main takeaway from, from that event? You gotta leave the one night stand in the past. Right. I'm just saying, just say like, sometimes it can just be that one night. Yeah. Look, I think I understand from the UFC's perspective, from the UFC's perspective, sorry, this is going to be the seventh hour that I've been talking. From the UFC's perspective, I totally get that that first night this year was magic. It was magic. The card placement was perfect. I mean, maybe I'll do a bit of a spiel. Like, we talk often all the time about how there are so many parts of the minutiae of building a fight card that make it special. It's matchmaking, it's fanfare, it's rhetoric, it's jeopardy, it's card placement, it's who turns up on the night in terms of the people in the audience, right? Are they in a great mood? Have they, you know, how's their day gone? How's the whole thing? Like, have the refereeing decisions gone well? Has the this and the that and the, like, there's so much to making a fight card go in a way that builds you a magical night. And a lot of that was lacking this evening. There were a ton of 
interesting matchups with with interesting storylines going in and questions that you and others had raised about these fights and a lot of those just didn't materialize a lot of those those questions didn't come to fruition i feel like card placement was a really big thing tonight and what i mean by big thing is a big thing that was lacking in the card itself you know we'll dive uh, or at least i'll dive into this like Paul Craig and, and Volker Ostermeyer just seemed to be in a weird spot. I actually thought Nathaniel Wood, Charles Rosa, that's a main card fight. Um, it doesn't make any sense to me to not put at least Molly McCann and Paddy Pimlet together one after the other, right? One always builds into the other, regardless of whether it's a, a loss and a win, two losses, two wins. They always build into the other, and it absolutely makes no sense. When you have a gargantuan star in Liverpool like Paddy Pimler is, and the audience, as we saw on the night, the lights went off, the phones came out, and Paddy Pimlet walked, that's the co-main event, lads. That's the co-main event. You give it the treatment, you allow Molly to do the walk after before him, and you get a build. And we didn't. Yeah, we did a live stream for Severe MMA through the entire card that ran six hours. Harry, I mean, listen, for a fellow that doesn't like to talk all that much, he is, as he says, in in hour number seven. Um, and we spoke as the actual co-main event was happening, Jack Hermans and Chris Curtis, and kind of said, look, it, it was understandable when that was Darren Till, that you leave Darren Till, and that Darren Till is obviously in that spot. He's the bigger name. He's the more established star, whatever, whatever. But as soon as he is forced out of that and replaced by Chris Curtis, it gives you license to shuffle the deck. And it really felt like having those gaps in between Molly and Patty, and then Patty in the main event, created sort of unnecessarily, unnecessary lags. It just sort of dulled the enthusiasm. It's like, you know, I'm going to make this a mixtape reference. You got a great mix going and it's a bunch of bangers, and then all of a sudden you drop some slow song. No, like I, I, it can't all be rise, but there can be rise and then plateau. You don't want to go rise and then crater and then try to get it up again. And Patty brought the house back, right? Brings it all back, and we'll get to him. He's one of the big takeaways from this card. But then you have that co-main event that just sucks the energy out again. You had some friends that were there that said, look, there were a lot of people that were we're fleeing. I mentioned on the live stream the fights out here. UFC 174 when Rory McDonald got his win over Tyron Woodley and we still had a title fight and people were like, great, the local fella's done. We're going to head out. Have a great night, champion Demetrius Johnson. So I agree completely that, that this was a should have reset the deck when Darren Till got injured and, and was forced off the card situation. For sure. Like, the prelims themselves weren't fantastic. There were some good performances. There were some interesting fights. But in terms of building a card, in terms of building the fervor of a card, like, let me just pull up. I, I, it'd probably take me too long to do this, but I'll try and do it. Let me try and pull up the 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 card we just had. Rodrigo Vog. Okay, I've got it, right? So I'll just run this through this very, very quickly. The opener was Mohamed Makayev versus Cody Durden, right? 
that was an absolutely brilliant performance from Mokayev and really set the card alight. At least and people three- were looking forward to, people were anticipating that fight. Yes. Corey McKenna and Elise Reed was a little bit of a stinker, but it was a stinker because Corey McKenna didn't really turn up and perform in the way that people wanted her to, and it still went to a split decision. Jack Shaw and Timo Valiev, although it was a, uh, a decision, it was an absolutely fantastic fight to watch. Paul Craig submits Nikita Krylov. Everyone goes wild because it's a support. It's a, it's a Paul Craig thing. Pavlovich comes out and absolutely destroys uh, Abdurakimov. Fine. Makwan Amerkani and Mike Grundy, brilliant finish. Aliyah Taporia and Jai Herbert, the back and forth craziness that that was for as long as it lasted. Marley McCann comes out and hits, you know, the possibly the KO of the year. Gunnar Nelson goes out and has a bit of a stinker against Takashi Sato. But because he's been out for so long, because he has the back for so long, because it's a dominant performance, the crowd are fine with it. We rise. And people kind of just forget that it's happened because they're still riding high off the Molly McCann. Paddy comes out submits Rodrigo Vargas. Arnold Allen comes out and absolutely destroys Dan Hooker. And then Aspinall comes out at the top of the bill and destroys Alexander Volkov. Like, you see how, if you'd have put Elise Reed first, right, it's probably one of the best cards of all time in terms of how it played out, right? Because that's just a monumental build from first all the way to the top. But these things happen in MMA, right? This was, that card... On when was it? It was uh, mid-March. Mid-March. Thank you. Yes. The 19th of March. Right. That is a card that is magical. You don't get those again unless they're all of the stars align. Right. But you also have to do a bit of work to get there. Right. And it just didn't feel like the UFC put in the same effort and maybe they didn't put any effort into the first card like we're thinking maybe it was just a lot of magic but i think if you didn't put in any work the answer isn't let's put in the same amount of work if not less it's a let's put more work in and capitalize on what we built the perfect example of that to me is the fact that the lightweight fight between mason jones and ludovic klein that was made official maybe 10 days ago at most i think more like seven ended up being the preliminary card closing fight. Like this is a fight that nobody up until this week knew was happening, wasn't scheduled to happen. And then you're like, great, this is how we're going to lead into the main card. These two guys that you haven't been thinking of at all, as we've talked about this card. To me, that's where you put Nathaniel Wood and Charles Rosa, or you put Mokayev and Charles Johnson. You put somebody that is that you're going to be talking about for the duration, like as soon as that fight is announced, right? We spend a lot of time getting excited about Nathaniel Wood coming back. You spoke to him, did a brilliant interview with him, talking about the move to featherweight and things like that. As soon as Mokayev was announced that he was fighting again, you're talking about who is Charles Johnson, figuring out the dilemmas of this fight, and is this going to be a test for this 21-year-old? And then all of a sudden last week they were like, right, by the way, Mason Jones is coming back. He hasn't done very much in the UFC thus far. We're going to put him in against this guy, Ludovic Klein, who was supposed to fight in six weeks, and now we're just going to throw them out there. And it's going to be the last fight before the main card. It just doesn't have that. It doesn't have the gravity. It doesn't have the weight to make you sit and stay. Like, you could have done done better with just about anything else as the last fight before. And that it's not that it was a bad fight. 
It's just that it didn't have the it didn't have the pull to it that I think you want from a fight in that position. Similar as you were saying to the Paul Craig Volkanos Demir opener for the main card. Traditionally, we see a banger. We see something that's going to get the energy going right out of the gate. Nathaniel Wood, Charles Rosa. This is my there, there was there was no way that that fight wasn't going to be entertaining as hell because Nathaniel Wood hasn't fought in two years and he wants to make a statement. And our all Charles Rosa knows how to do is get into fist fights. But I digress. For sure. For sure. And I think this is something that we should talk about more and something we should be more critical of. Mostly because I think that the job... I don't know who builds the cards, right? I don't know if it is McMaiden and Sean Shelby. Obviously, they put the matchups together, but I don't know who actually builds the card. Do you know? Neither do I, and I'd like to find out. I don't know that I'll get ever get an actual answer, an official answer mm-hmm. from the UFC personnel themselves. But I think I think you're right. I think it is a thing that we should talk about more here on this podcast, on this show, because most weeks there's two or three matchups at least where we go, okay, why is this here versus that? And lots of times I can give you the reason, I can give you the explanation because it's this person was on the Ultimate Fighter or Contender Series or whatever the case may be. But with this card, there like there just wasn't necessarily that. And I get wanting to have some of the things and the people in the places that they were, but it felt, as we said, as soon as Darren Till was out, you've got to reshuffle those deck chairs and make it so that at least the main card is as exciting for the people in in the arena as humanly possible. Right, because really, really and truly, the London card in March was magical in part because of the crowd, right? In part because of the crowd's reaction. And I was listening to a podcast with uh, a couple of comedians having a conversation and and one of them said that Louis C.K. gave them one of the greatest pieces of advice, one of the greatest pieces of advice. And that is when you go to a show, the best compliment they could give you is I couldn't get a ticket. Right. Because you know then when you come back, they're going to be at the front of the line as much as humanly possible to get a ticket, right? Now, don't get me wrong. The UFC is probably going to sell out regardless when it comes to London because it's London, because it's the three letters. But you do really want a richness of memory when they come back. And let me tell you, when they come back next year, it won't be this card that people are remembering. It'll be the March card. You're not going to see highlights from this card selling the card next year. You're going to see the highlights from March, right? You might see Molly's finish. You might see Paddy's finish, but you're not seeing much else, right? So I think, and the reason why I'd like to know who builds the cards, by the way, is if it's Sean and McMaynard, somebody needs to take something off those fellas' plates because they are working to the bone, lads. Their job is so difficult, right? And to then make it, across all divisions for two fellas with 600 people on the roster or however many they've got, that's a tough old gig. And if you're then also telling them, by the way, lads, can you put these cards together as well, please? That's tough. It's tough. As always, I volunteer so long as I can work from home. I'm in. I just don't want to move to Las Vegas. That has been my stance for 
10 years now. There was a two-year period where I was willing to go. I'm now very comfortable living here in Abbotsford. And I'll do the job. Happy to do the job. Would love to do the work. Like that kind of detailed work as the guy that went through and wrote out the records of everybody that has competed on Dana White's Contender Series over the first five seasons very recently. I would do the work, but I'm not doing it from anywhere other than here. We'll get into the work of, of this card, and we'll work, as we always do on the show, top down. So the main event, we've got 15 seconds to talk about. Tom Aspinall, unfortunately, suffers a knee injury 15 seconds in. Curtis Blade gets a TKO win, very similar to last week with Yair Rodriguez and Brian Ortega. This was just, I mean, we didn't even get the four minutes that we got with Ortega and Rodriguez. We didn't get any any questions answered, any moments of anything. And really, to me, and this is this is not to diminish the injury suffered by Brian Ortega, this one's this one feels really worse because that was the reaction of Tom Aspinall, the motion that you see in his left leg when he plants, or sorry, his right leg when he plants and steps back down is really scary. And to see the pain and agony that he's in, it makes you think the worst things you can think. Now, I will say we haven't had any updates. Obviously, Tom transported directly to the hospital. Sure, in the next few days, we'll get some more information about what exactly happened, severity, duration of time off, and things like that. But this feels like a we're not going to see Tom Aspinall for a very, very long time. We wish him all the best in his recovery and his health come coming forward. But we also feel pretty bad for Curtis Blades because this was an opportunity to make a statement again, and instead of of getting to do that. It's sort of a shoulder shrug, like, now what for Curtis Blades? Yeah. In the moment, you don't know what's happened. There was one camera angle that seemed to be telling, and that was a camera angle sort of behind Tom Aspinall. And it looked as though his right knee perforated the side of his leg and up into the thigh muscle. Um, but I mean, I'm looking at a seven, 0.575, 0.75 speed clip of a weird angled shot. Like who knows? Right. So as you say, we're going to find out in the coming days and months, but I think I agree. These are professional fighters. They're in the hurt business, right? Their whole job is to mask pain and keep going forward and doing the things. Tom Aspinall, as soon as his leg was coming back, as soon as that foot planted into the floor, agony wrists across his face. If it wasn't a TKO, it's a verbal tap, right? Like the shrieking of pain and the utter agony that he was in immediately is plain to see for anyone, regardless of whether you're watching on at home or, or whatever. Um, fair play to Curtis Blades for immediately respecting that and not looking to think, oh, I've, I've damaged him from a leg kick or whatever, immediately sees the agony, immediately sees the, the pain and the severity of whatever's happened. Back steps, fair play to Curtis Blades. Um, not that we were really expecting anything different from Curtis Blades, but you know what I mean. Um, you're right that who knows what happens. 
to Thomas Bernal now. Um, if it's as severe as it looks, that's a significant amount of time out of the octagon, a significant amount of time in rehab, a significant time in recovery. And we should say, this is an intangible, maybe I'm not right to say this, but I'll say it. Weidman never looked the same. Anderson Silva never looked the same. We may have lost Thomas Bernal as we know him tonight in 15 seconds. We may have. Um, we won't know that until, you know, if he chooses to come back after his injury and whatever, whatever, we won't know. Um, but there's a very real possibility that, you know, we also don't know what's going to happen to McGregor, right? Like, who knows what happens when he comes back. But, but the significance of the trauma, who knows what effect that has on a man, on a fighter. Um, something that, that uh, one of my friends messaged me and he said, how do you think this goes for him? Because fighters have to tell themselves they're invincible. And now there's an extremely egregious example of him not being invincible. And that's an excellent point, right? A really excellent point. So for Tom Aspinall, it sucks. It's it's a horrendous injury to have. And and as you said, we wish him all the best in recovery. But you're also right. We have to lend this to Curtis Blades. Curtis Blades has put in a full camp. He's traveled to London. He's not cut any weight because he's a heavyweight. But you know what I mean? He's gone through the process to get into a fight that lasts 15 seconds. And that's absolutely not the way he wants to win a fight in any way, stretch of the imagination. Well, and took a fight again against a guy that is ranked behind him because he's trying to stay active. He's trying to do everything in his power to move forward. And fair or not, a lot of people, the minute you say, well, he beat Tom Aspinall, will go, ah, well, did he though? Like, it's a victory and it goes down as a victory and it needs to, at the absolute least, keep him in his position. I don't think you can say he moves forward because of it, but it keeps him in his position. It is still a victory. It still counts. It. Listen, none of us want to see it that way. He doesn't want that win that way. He believes he can beat Tom Aspinall. If he didn't, he wouldn't have signed this contract. But it just sucks because it now creates and an inserts another reason to sort of doubt somebody or question where someone fits through no no doing of their own. There's no evidence that that makes you question Curtis Blades more after this performance, but he's going to get questions. Coming event, we sort of touched on it a couple of times already. Jack Hermanson gets a unanimous decision win over Chris Curtis in a fight where Chris Curtis was frustrated from about minute three through to the rest of the fight. Jack Hermanson, to me, does a very good job of sticking to his game plan, sticking to an approach that he felt was going to work and prove to be effective of attacking the lead leg, kind of sticking and moving, circling out as Curtis tried to close distance. Clearly, clearly annoyed Chris Curtis. But it's not on Jack Hermanson, and we said this on the stream, and we've said this before for many, many fights. It's not on Jack Hermanson to engage on your terms. It's up to you to make him do things that are going to stop him having success and force him into the realm that you want. You said throughout, and they talked. we talked throughout that fight, it's all about that lead foot and that, that outside foot placement. Give, give everybody a little bit of that breakdown. I know people have heard it before on, on shows and, and on the broadcasts themselves. But what is it specifically that Chris Curtis needed to try to do more of in order to avoid 
Jack Hermanson constantly escaping from him. Yeah, so I'll preface this with with one thing just on the on the performance of, of Jack Hermanson, and that's that this is this is unfortunately for Chris Curtis the highest levels of fighting. This is what happens. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. highest levels of fighting is one game plan versus another. It is not, it is less about will, heart, grit, determination, and it's more about skills and game plans. I mean, one could turn around and be like, well, you didn't engage Rodolfo Vieira on the ground at all two months ago. Like, does, why Vieira, does Vieira get to give you the finger for not grappling with him? Right, right, right. And, and you know why you didn't do that? Because you're smart. Yeah, because right? you're, you're sharp. Because yeah. what's the point, right? This is, this is elite level. Jack Hermanson at middleweight is an elite level fighter right? He is the upper echelon of that division. And okay, he may not be an elite fighter in terms of the global pantheon and the lexicon of skill in MMA, but in that division, he is as elite as you're going to get in that division that's not named Israel Adesanya. So, you know, to it doesn't look good when Chris yeah. Curtis is is giving the bird and refusing to respect Jack, Jack Hermanson's handshake afterwards, Jack Hermanson apologizes to Chris Curtis. He throws in the bird again. Like, it's not a great look. Anyway, anyway. The reason why footwork is talked about in MMA is because footwork often creates distance and angles. Angles are the reason as to why a punch lands or a punch does not land. If I'm Jack Hermanson and uh, he, Jack Hermanson was a Southpaw, right? Chris Curtis is Orthodox. Pretty Chris sure Curtis is a Southpaw. Jack Hermanson is Orthodox. Fine, 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 fine. So when you look at a Southpaw versus Orthodox is, is a really easy way for you to see this, right? Whoever has their foot on the outside space. So whoever has their foot further to the outside than the than the other person, regardless of Southport or Orthodox, is the person that is dictating the angles. If I'm stood in front of you and I take a step to my left at a 90 degree angle and you take a step to your left at a 90 degree angle at the same time, we're going to land exactly the same place at a 90 degree angle, right? If I start two degrees more than you, it means that you have to pivot an extra two degrees than, more than you thought you were right? So if I go to 92 degrees and you go to 90 degrees and we both throw jabs, I'm going to land and you're not, right? Because you're on the 90 degree angle and I'm on a 92 degree angle. So the reason why the footwork battle is important, especially if you're winning it, is it means that you're dictating the amount with which your opponent has to shape up and square up in order to be in front of you to throw shots, the more of an angle that you can create, the more time you have to throw shots, land shots, and get yourself out. Or, if you're so inclined, to grapple or enter the clinch or whatever it is you're looking to do, right? Land leg kicks, whatever. It doesn't matter. So angle in MMA, in boxing, in kickboxing, in footboxing, in Muay Thai, whatever it is, angles win fights, right? And Jack Hermanson was doing a fantastic job at doing two things with his footwork. The first was winning the outside battle, meaning he had the superior, the superior ability to land strikes. Secondly, he was forcing Chris Curtis to chase him and follow him. Right? If I'm Chris Curtis and I'm having, to, I'm looking to close the cage off, 
to cut the cage off. I need to be winning that footwork battle. Or at the very least, if I'm not winning it, I must reset and begin to cut the cage off again. He did neither of those things because Jack Hermanson was winning the angle battle and also moving backwards, right? So that's one of the, the vast nuances, but one of in really important thing that's very difficult to see, but is a massive reason as to why Jack Hermanson won that fight and a massive reason as to why Chris Curtis was so frustrated. Adolfo Vieira is just going to walk forward, right? His level of striking right. isn't as such at a high level that he's going to know the nuance of footwork battles and this and that. All he's looking for is he sees hips and he dives on them. Fine. I'm not. That's not taking anything away from Chris Curtis's performance to stop that those takedowns or stop right. that grappling but when you're coming up against a different problem and that different problem is a bit of footwork and a bit of rudimentary striking basics it causes problems the real question that this begs us is if that footwork of jack Hermanson caused such problems to chaos curtis how good is israel Sanya? that's the real question i mean not even just Israel, but just it, it to me highlights and underscores all those things that, that you said of, of why it's important, those little nuances, those things that we are frankly trying to convey and trying to speak about on this program, on the preview, on the different things that we do together and, and separately as well to try to elevate that understanding for people and try to show them things and speak about things so that they understand when they're listening to the comms and they say, well, he needs to try to cut off the cage here. Now, hopefully one more person understands exactly what it is. Those, those broadcasters are talking about. It's getting that outside foot to keep Jack Hermanson from continually just being able to get out the side door, whichever side it is. There was no point where Chris Curtis is able to corral him and just walk him backwards and keep him. It's funny. I have a piece coming out next week. Um, my coach, one of my coach conversations and Mark Montoya of factory X is one of the people that I talked to. And in talking about the Kai Kara France, uh, Brenda Moreno fight, he said, Kai needs to fight him in a triangle, not the octagon. And that sort of, to me was a click in moment of like, ah, you need to keep him in this space right here. And that can be the, wherever it is in the cage, fine, but he can only have that much space. And if you let him get more than that, you're stuck. And if we can dive into that a little bit more, right? Like cutting the cage essentially means, because you can cut the cage without winning the outside football, right? Don't get that twisted. But cutting the cage essentially means, like you've said, you cut off the available routes for a fighter. If you want to see this done without footwork, without purely footwork, go and watch Conor McGregor's early run, right? His yeah. pressure footwork pushes people back towards the cage. And then if you go one way, there's a, a left hook waiting for you. If you go the other way, there's a right high kick or there's a spinning wheel kick right. or there's a whatever. So he's pushing you back with footwork and then cutting the cage off with strikes. Right? Right. You often see fighters, they will dart to their left, meaning that you'll try and go to your right. They'll then throw a right high kick. So you can't go that way. So you go backwards again and then they'll dart to their right and then they'll come reset and they'll dart to their left and slowly, 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 they're going to find a way 
to corner you. Cutting the cage off or cutting cutting space off, we should just say, yeah, is taking away your space. Is massive in boxing. Why? Because there's a fucking square. We're not dealing with an octagon, which is essentially circular here. We are dealing with a square. If you notice a boxer find their way to the ropes, panic sets in. Because they right. know sooner rather than later, they're going to end up in a corner. When they end right. up in a corner, you're fucked. So that, yeah. if you want to go and watch like really, really solid reasons as to why cutting off space is so important, go and watch boxing. Don't really watch it for anything else. Go and watch MMA. But like cutting off the cage is essentially limiting the options with which a fighter has to choose a periphery to exit a, a transition of fighting. I do think one thing that you mentioned earlier as well in regards to Chris Curtis is, and I mentioned this in my recap, it's just a bad look. Like this is a guy that came in with a lot of goodwill, a lot of people really happy about the story, see him having success to then like, I don't think anybody would have penalized him that badly for losing a fight to Jack Romanson, who is, you know, a tenured top 10 fighter. You took it on a couple of weeks notice Everybody's happy that Jack still got to fight. You got to see you. So it's a loss, big deal. But then when you're out there and, and you're visibly frustrated throughout and you're inviting him to the center a bunch of times and he's saying no and you're flipping him off throughout and you're not accepting the apology and it's just you're pissed off the whole time, then it becomes a bit of a bad look. And it becomes we had one, one person in the live stream say, like, he's lost a fan now. Like, I was I really liked this dude. This is childish. This is amateurish. I'm over him. That's the kind of stuff that that makes this suck. That's what makes it really, a, truly a bad look. Like, you can lose the fight. Fine. You can be frustrated. Fine. I get it. But at the end of the day, shake the man's hand, accept his apology, quit being frustrated, because really, you have no one to be frustrated with other than yourself. I mean, firstly, fuck Jack Hermanson for apologizing in the first place. Apologize for what? Well, yeah, true. You just beat a man <laughs> in a fight that right. you're both contracted to and he's having a bit of a bitch fit because he wasn't good enough right that's not the fucking problem my friend you went in there with a game plan and you had a short notice replacement just like he had a short notice replacement it's true and you executed your game plan to absolute not perfection but to a high standard don't apologize to anyone my friend if he wants to flip you off call him a cunt and walk off with your extra fucking check right like mate this is this is fighting ladies and gentlemen like yes it's a sport i get it but this is fighting you don't have to apologize for winning not to anyone right like i understand curtis blade said sorry to the crowd and I, again it's not for him to say sorry either it's not his fucking fault he didn't yep. want this to happen he didn't expect this to happen and when it did happen you could bet your bottom dollar that he's not fucking celebrating in the cage go and look at the picture that he took with his four cornermen the corner <laughs> right. he's there like great Got to stand here and take this picture. Yeah, fuck these guys. I don't even want to be here, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, for the, the 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 whole Chris Curtis look thing, I understand, my friend. You've been bested after having possibly the best run of your entire career when you're 35 fights deep or whatever it is. You had a load of fanfare. You came in. You really wanted this to be the fairy tale story. Short notice, gets the big win, does it in London, can do the whole hand thing. I get it. I get it. But manners don't it, cost a thing, my friend. It didn't happen to grow up, Peter Pan. Right. Manners don't cost a fucking thing. You lost a fight. 
deal with it. Brings us to the people's main event. The people's champ, Patrick Pimblett, comes out, gets a victory, a submission victory in the second round over Jordan Levitt in a fight that I think for me answered a few questions about Patty. Gave me, gave me a few more. I mean, there's still more questions to ask. There's still more uncertainty about the top end level and where he can get to. But I tell you what, A, the kid knows how to, to set a scene and to, to get a party going. B, when he finds a way that he can, that he can attack a finish, he's pretty good at, at finishing. And C, uh, starting to think that there might be a little more upside there than, than I have given him credit for thus far. Because he navigated some tricky spots. He navigated some difficult, not tr- not necessarily like real dangerous spots, but some moments that we had the questions about. How is he going to do when Jordan Levitt looks to grapple? What is he going to do in these spots when he's on his back and this guy with good control is there? I think he performed pretty well. I haven't really gotten a read of, of your reaction here yet, and I don't know if it's because it's the middle of the early hours of the morning there because you're still kind of uncertain about Patty Pimblett. So why don't you tell us? My read is that Paddy Pimblett is going to be really fun while it lasts. I, um, Jordan Levitt, to his credit, came in and tried his best, but you're never going to see Jordan Levitt in a top 15 You're never going to see Jordan Levitt in a top 20. You're never going to see Jordan Levitt doing massive things in in the UFC, right? He's a pretty one-dimensional fighter. He has an okay kicking game. And the reason he has an okay kicking game is because he's so confident in his ability to wrestle. He's not a potent submission threat. Uh, You know, he got the inverted triangle, fine. But he got the inverted triangle over a man that was so tired that I think if you put stuck his stuck your fingers up his nose, he would have tapped, right? Like it wasn't it wasn't a methodical, well thought out, set him up, trap him, kill him. It was it was a natural featherweight stopping at lightweight after two years off because he ballooned up during COVID to like two hundred some odd pounds. Right. My read of Paddy Pimlet is that Coming into this fight, I had big reservations as to whether Levitt was going to be able to dissuade his way or move, meander his way through the aggressive striking that Paddy was going to come with, was going to get to his hips and was going to ride him for a couple of rounds. In the first round, we kind of saw that, right? Paddy did an okay job of getting back to his feet when, when placed on his back. But I wasn't, he wasn't able to then disengage for significant periods of time and go back to what he wanted to do, which was keep the fight on the feet, right? We didn't see takedowns stuffed. We saw eventual disengagements through just pushing away or whatever it is. Like, again, I'd need to go and watch the fight back fully. We were live streaming. We were talking about things. We were trying to do a myriad of other things. I wasn't able to watch uh, with the the same level of potency and focus that I do usually. But 
I know for sure that as I was watching, I was like, this is exactly how I expected this to go. That that first round was exactly how I expected it to go. And in both corners, we saw the same things that I expected to see. Paddy a bit like, this is not what I expected. And Jordan Levitt like, fuck me, this kid's strong, isn't he? Jesus, he's a big old cunt and it's tiring to keep him down. Yes, is the answer. Now, in the second round, we actually saw Levitt have a bit more success on the feet. He landed some of the deep kicks and they did land to the body, to the head, whatever. He did get to Paddy's hips. He did take him down again. Now, Paddy did well to reverse some of those positions or, or create scrambles in some of those positions. And then we got to Paddy's saving grace. And Paddy's saving grace is his potency of submissions. As soon as he locked up that DAS, the DAS wasn't... Uh, I don't even think the DAS was intended to finish Jordan Levitt. The no. DAS was to slow Jordan Levitt down, and it was to force Jordan Levitt to open up his shoulders and move into positions where Paddy could create some space. Now we saw the glory, the beautiful, the brilliance of Paddy Pimlet's game. He uses that DAS to collapse one of Jordan Levitt's arms. As he collapses Jordan Levitt's, one of Jordan Levitt's arms and begins to take his back, he traps an arm in a body triangle, wraps the body triangle on the other side. When I tell you that that is high-level grappling, I am not lying. If you go and watch any, go and watch ADCC this year when it comes up in September, right? And count on one hand <laughs> right. how many guys trap arms in a transition to the back. The answer is going to be very small. Probably you'll count it on one hand, if any, right? To trap a good grappler's arm as deep as Paddy had it in a body triangle in transition is ludicrous. Right. The then eventual choke and whatever is rudimentary. Paddy does the things that he's done a hundred thousand times. He makes sure that he's got his grips. He sets his grips. He finishes the choke. We're going home. Right. However, everything up until the locking of the DAS is not impressive to me. Right. It's a glaring hole in what's supposed to be your skill set. Your skill set is supposed to be the grappling. Yeah. We saw it against Sorenbach. We saw it against Nad Naramani. If you can put Paddy Pimlet on his back and keep him there for a significant amount of time, his submission potency dies, right? His submission potency dramatically falls through the floor like the stocks in the fucking stock market are right now, right? Paddy at the moment has big power. And if he lands, he could put you away. And if you get him anywhere near a position where he can snatch your neck, he's dangerous. But I don't think that this is enough to warrant the stardom that we're looking at this man for. To me, and I'll hand this over to you in a second, to me, skills and stardom, when everything is perfect for a fighter, go at the same rate right? Maybe even one or the other. If you've got more skills than your stardom and then the stardom shoots up, fantastic. If they go at the same level, amazing. Conor McGregor had more skill than he had stardom, right? right? And then the stardom was like, we're going all the way out of the roof, but he right. still had the skill to match the stardom. Israel Adesanya, similar. The stardom matched the skill as he rose. Max Holloway, 
the star stardom matched the skill. Alexander Volkanovsky, the star matched the skill. Joe Sayaldo, the star matched the skill. I'm going on and going on and going on, right? Paddy Pimlet, the, the stardom is like seven and the skills are like four, right? I have to say this as an analyst, just watching the fights. There is not many lightweights that are ranked or just outside the rankings that Paddy's going to be able to do what he did to tonight. Right. Can Paddy go away, round out his game, figure out a bit more offensive wrestling, figure out a bit more defensive wrestling, and figure out some more get-ups to go with the hands? Yes, he can. He absolutely can. He's already taken it upon himself to go to California and to work with J-Flow Judo to wrap some of those holes up in his game. Can he continue to do that? Yes, because he brought an American D1 wrestler over for the last camp and they did the grappling things. Not that it helped against Casula Vargas, but these things happen. So can he do these things? Yes. Will he do those things? He's probably three McDonald's in already. Well, and these are these are the things that, for me, as this is the next day's takeaways, are the, are the questions that we now that we continue to have because really it's just a continuation. He's passed this last this last test, this latest test, but every one from here on out is still a test because we tried during the live stream the exercise of like, okay, who does he fight next? And it's difficult a to find him somebody that is had a win or two. And is having some success, and it it is a fight where it doesn't feel like you're giving Patty another layup, because at some point fans will tire of why is this guy continuing to fight people that he absolutely should beat. So he's now won three straight in the UFC all by finish. That limits the people that you can put him in there against. It doesn't necessarily have to be someone coming off a win. It can be someone coming off a loss. But if it is someone coming off a loss, that person is probably a little bit further ahead in the rankings or in the pecking order than maybe you would like to see. If it is somebody coming off a win, it's somebody in that sort of the name that jumped out to me and just kind of skimming back through recent fight cards was Jamie Malarkey. And that's a tough fight. That's a difficult fight. Jamie Malarkey is a tough bastard. He can wrestle a little bit. He's got good hands. He's durable. He's gritty. We saw that against Michael Johnson. We've seen that throughout his career. That becomes a challenging fight. So that's going to be a thing that Patty has to deal with. One. The other is the part you said. Of the Kenny, sure. Willie, I don't know. Because I've also heard him say for years he's going to get his nutrition and his diet and his professionalism and his focus under wraps and then you know, he said at his post-fight presser today that he ballooned up to 205 after his last fight. Like, that's that's just, it's, it's, it's irresponsible, frankly. Like, it's irresponsible as a professional athlete because it means that in that camp, in those 12 weeks that you're getting ready, you're just losing weight. You're just cutting weight. You're just getting your body back into shape to compete. Just for everyone that's listening to this, either in the UK or whatever, that's 22 kilos. Yeah. Two, two kilos. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
and like, look, I'm not expecting expecting him to walk around at 162 for fighting at 155, right? Like, that's unrealistic. But, you know, much more than maybe 180, and you're starting to get into that. Now, now you're not doing things the right way. So to be even, right? Like, we've had some people, and I know some, some former lightweights that were big thickums that got up to 205 or that got up there and, and said like, all I do is cut weight and it's miserable. And it's why their skills never advanced. And I'm sure if you went back in the annals of UFC history and you watched some of these fights, you'd be like, ah, that might be the guy Spencer's talking about. He came in as a wrestler with a little bit of boxing and he stayed being a wrestler with a little bit of boxing for his entire career. And so Patty's got to get some of that in check. He's got to get some of that figured out because he has the magnetism. There is no, like, he's just a gravitational force in terms of the charisma. Like, I want, truthfully, I want everything in my being to not smile when that kid is coming out to the cage and bouncing around and doing his hands and everybody's in it with him. It's impossible. I said it when we did the preview show. My missus doesn't watch fights at all, doesn't have any interaction with them at all. And she loved Patty's last post-fight presser. Because he just has that magnetism. Now, he also said he'd rather be fat and happy than in shape and not eat the things that he likes. And that's very much an ethos that we subscribe to here in the Kite household. But he just has that magnetism to him, right? There's not an ounce of it that feels disingenuous or anything like that. He walked out with the armband on for the young boy that that he was close with that passed away. He had a terrific post-fight speech about a friend that had died recently and and sharing about being vulnerable. And like, those are all commendable, wonderful things that make him somebody that I do want to see succeed because it takes a lot to say what he said and stand on that stage and do it in that manner and be that open and that vulnerable and walk out of the cage just in absolute tears. But it's why I want him to to get some of this professionalism dialed in and get some of this stuff, the rest of it dialed in because I want him to have the most success he can possibly have for all the things that he does right or that he has that are correct when it comes to this sport. But I just don't know, man. He's like, listen, and I understand. I said it on the preview show. You're never going to find somebody that that's not going to understand the allure of Popeyes more than me. I'm with you. I'm even with you. He was on DC and RC, two Louisiana boys, telling them that he doesn't particularly like the biscuits. I'm with you on that. They're a little too salty, but goddamn, a two-piece and, and fries. Yeah, I'm with you, Patty. But I'm not a professional fighter. I don't have to make weight at any point. Please, just, you know, two salads to every Big Mac. That, that's I, just, I think that we're just i mean i said this on 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 the the live stream and i'll I'll say it here again self-sabotage is something that's rife in mma a lot of people that are doing mma are doing mma to to fix demons in their own life you know there, there are plenty of people that you and i talk about offline that you've spoken to in your experiences is that they are doing this to fix problems from their childhood or their current mental being or whatever mma is a better sport with paddy pimlet in it as a personality but paddy pimlet 
doesn't stay in MMA at the magnitude that he is yeah. without Paddy Pimlet changing who he is in MMA, right? And this is the conundrum that we're looking at. We saw recently the UFC truly show their hand with Nate Diaz. They truly showed how they view fighters, what they view fighters as, and what happens if you're a fighter that's just gotten a little bit too big for your boots in their estimation. If I'm Paddy Pimlet, I'm looking at that extremely carefully. In a few weeks after the ebb and flow of, of the night has worn down, The Coco Co main event, as he walked out to, the lights go down, the phones come out, the shower of flashes appear and hits his music and he walks out doing the wave as Spencer showed, right? And he's bouncing and the hair's going and everything's having a wonderful time. My boy, if you lose three straight, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter the tickets you've sold at UFC London or UFC Liverpool. It doesn't matter the Twitter followers you've got. It doesn't matter the Instagram followers you've got. It's game over. You know, there's no more chips in the vending machine. It's done. Right. And yeah, don't get me wrong. Can Paddy go out and go back to Cage Warriors and make a run? I, I guess. But the height with which Paddy is reaching right now. An O2 arena, 20,000 fans screaming, captivated in the palm of his hand, fully present for him, his walkout, his post-fight interview, everything. Let me tell you, that goes away if the things that are difficult don't change. And that, to me is a crying shame if we never see it. Because as we said on the live show, and Shawnee Podcast has said this plenty of times that he doesn't think Paddy will get to the level that Paddy thinks he can get to, whatever, whatever. And maybe it's because Sean has the foresight and has seen enough fighters go through these things and know that it's very difficult for a fighter to change. But Paddy Pimlet is a guy that we will never know what his ceiling is if he doesn't change. If his natural ceiling is just where he is right now, fair fucks to him. But we will never, ever, ever know unless we see him believe in his own potential, agree to himself and only himself, that he's willing to go and chase it and then go and do the chasing. Very well said. We will move on. Late heavyweight fight, Nikita Krylov gets a rather quick finish of Alexander Gustafsson, who returns after a nearly two-year layoff, has now lost four straight fights. We say every week that we're, we're not going to be the people that tell, tell folks when to retire. It's a decision for themselves. Alexander Gustafsson's going to have to sit and have yet another long conversation with himself. We spoke to him this week coming in, asking him why the time was right to return, what motivated the comeback. He said all the right things, all the things you would expect. And then in application on Saturday in the octagon, he looked very similar to the guy that faced Fabricio Verdum and had very little to offer. 
the speed and reaction times are are not there. And it's one of those things that I said it going in. You just, it's so difficult. And I don't know this from my own personal experience. Obviously, I've never retired from fighting. It is so hard to just dial those things back up after an extended period away, after a long layoff, and especially to come in and do it against the top 10 fighter, think what you will, or a top 15 fighter. Think what you will of Nikita Krylov. He is a dangerous man to face when you haven't fought in two years' time and you've lost three straight and you've questioned whether you want to keep competing and you've walked away at times. It is a good victory for Krylov, who does exactly what he needs to do. The actual blow that put Alexander Gustafsson down for the final time was a wonderful shot from, as you noted during the live stream, a collar tie and a left hand to the jaw. Really nicely done. But to me, the takeaway of this is that we've seen the best days of Alexander Gustafsson. There isn't a return to form coming. There isn't a, and all of a sudden he becomes the latest late 30s guy to make a run towards the title like Jan Blachowicz or Glover Teixeira, two men that he beat. I think that maybe played a part in some of his decision-making. It feels like the time has come for for Alex Alex Gustafsson to sit and have another long think about his future. I don't want to see Alexander Gustafsson fight again. I actually think he looked worse than he did against Vadum. Yeah. Um, because you know Vadum is slow, and True. He's, an old, he's an older guy, right? He's an older yeah. guy. And uh, I'm not. I don't mean slow in a negative sense. He's a heavyweight. He's naturally going to be slower than than somebody a little bit lighter than him or whatever. But Gustafsson was slow then. He was even slower this evening. Like right out of the gate, Krilov just walked the over and in the face. And Gustafsson was like, "Oh yeah, I'm doing the fighting, aren't I? Oh yeah, shit. Uh, okay." And by that time, he's already on his ass. Like, yeah, it's. This sport's a bitch, man. This sport is miserable. It's 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 difficult, right? Like it's genuinely difficult. I've said this a lot when when asked. Like Alexander Gustafsson was one of the first fighters I ever saw. I think he was the first fighter that I ever saw live at my friend's house. I was like fourteen years old, and he was like, "Oh, there's this thing on if you want to watch it." And we end up flicking on and 6 a.m. There I am, sleep deprived, one eye open, and this six foot five blonde geezer comes out. And I'm like, who the fuck's this fella? Why has he got fucking red and yellow tight shorts on with eyes on the back? Like, what the fuck's this? And then he goes out and knocks some fella out. I can't remember who it is. And I was like, oh, oh, this thing's fun. What's this? And here I am, fucking 10 years later or whatever it is, 14 years later. 14 probably. years later. And I'm now talking about him getting destroyed by an average light heavyweight that in his heyday, it would have been the other way around. It would have been him walking over and just smashing Krilov in the face. Like we, I said on the live stream and I'll say it again, we absolutely have to give Alexander Gustafsson his flowers. It is up to us as media members to educate the newer fans that, Maybe that's the first time they've seen Gustafsson or maybe they've only seen Gustafsson in the Vadum fight and this one, exactly who Gustafsson is. 
but it's also our job as the media to tell people that that's who Gustafsson was. Right. And what Gustafsson is right now is a shell of that man. Right. One of the things we talked about, and I don't want to linger on this for too long, we talked about sort of that it's got to be difficult that the moments people remember you for the most, the things that people talk about you for the most are those moments where you were close but just didn't quite get there. He's remembered more for his losses than his victories. Nobody talks about the run-up to the first John Jones fight, which was a very impressive run. Nobody really mentions he's the guy that brought the UFC to Sweden for the first time. He's the guy that brought the UFC to a stadium show in Sweden that at the time was was the largest attendance in UFC history, topping UFC 129 at the Sky Dome in Toronto. We talk about the loss to John Jones and we talk about the narrow loss to Daniel Cormier. And then maybe we talk about the knockout to Anthony Johnson and the loss of Anthony Smith at home. And, and so that's got to be really difficult as Alexander Gustafsson to sit with. And so I do think, as you said, it is on us and important for us to talk about just how good this guy, regardless of what those results were, just how skilled this man was, just how talented and successful he was and accomplished he was and what all he did, because it doesn't always translate into results. That's that's the that's the miserable piece of this sport, right? I remember I wrote a sort of remembrance of, of Carlos Condit when he announced his retirement. And he didn't go out on a high note. He didn't go out with things going well. It was a bunch of losses, and I think he got a win or two in there. He beat Matt Brown, and he beat Court McGee, but it was again off, off a loss that he called it a career. And it's on us to go back and say, well, I remember the WEC when he's the welterweight champion. And he's walking around like a psycho in the corner and he really, his nickname's the natural born killer. And you go, okay, I'm, yeah, I'm in on this guy because he fights like that too. We got to do that with Alexander Gustafsson because he was the mauler. There were a bunch of dudes that got absolutely smoked and he deserved every ounce of, of praise and admiration he got when he was in that prime where he was one of the three best light heavyweights in the world. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, and you said it there, like MMA kind of sucks balls, right? And yeah, it's miserable. It it very rarely ends well. And that's the thing. And it's one of the, it's one of the reasons I shout so much and get so fired up sometimes when we don't appreciate people in the moment and people beyond just the championship set. It's hard to do this. It's hard to stick around and be doing this for so fucking long that you remember 14 years ago when you first saw them compete. It's so hard to be Jim Miller. It was so difficult to be Jeremy Stevens for so many years in the top 10 of two different divisions in the UFC. The results may not be great. The actual record may not be pretty, but show me people that stuck around for that long. Give them the respect. Give them the flowers they deserve. This shit is hard. It never ends pretty. Very seldom does it end pretty. And so don't just remember it for the end. Go back and talk about when it was good. 100%.
A hundred percent. I mean, let's not labor that point because otherwise. Yeah, we'll just get here and get really sad because it's getting into the wee hours of the morning for you. And it will get get real sad real quick. So we move to to the women's flyweight fight. Molly McCann goes out, gets a second very good victory in a row in London, stopping Hannah Goldie in the first round. She fought really confidently this time. She looked locked in from the minute she started walking out. One of my questions going in was how would Molly McCann deal with the pressure of now being one of the people asked to perform on this show? The answer is quite fucking well. Quite well. Went out, did her thing, made good choices in terms of the way she engaged, the way she fought Hannah Goldie, not giving her a lot of time to use her strength in the clinch and things like that. And when she landed and she got her hurt, did all the right things, picked her spot, landed that elbow again, got her out of there in a hurry, and then celebrated and is still probably partying now. A very good win for Molly McCann, would you say? Definitely. Definitely. And I actually think what we saw from Molly McCann was evolution. Mental evolution. Yes. And to me... Building skills is probably the easiest thing to do in MMA. Because day by day by day, you go into the gym and you have somebody there that says to you, this isn't very good. Let me show you how to do it better. And you're like, thanks. And then you go and do the thing. Right. Building and developing mentally is we just talked about this with Paddy Pimlet, right? It is probably one of, if not the most challenging skills to build. Why? Because nobody is there able to look into your brain and tell you what's going on and to tweak this here and turn this level up and add a few XP points here and take a few there and move and shake and... It doesn't work like that. And yet Molly McCann walked out in front of that O2 comfy at home. Like she belonged there. Hands raised, teeth fixed, beaming. And she gets into the cage and she embraces the crowd. And she looks at Hannah Goldie and Hannah Goldie says, fist bump and molly goes nah get fucked and she goes out and from the opening bell we don't see head on chest big overhand rights we see pacing we see range we see straight shots we see defensive grappling we see power hitting we see impactful countering we see very little wastage We see a bit of head movement and we see patience. Patience comes from a fighter and a person who's began to accept who they are. Limitations, upsides, the lot. Not only do we see patience, but we see creativity. She has Hannah Goldie a little hurt, a little wobbled, and backing up against the fence. And she has the wherewithal to be like, two spinning elbows in a row, lads. 
She throws it. She lands it. And then she follows up and finishes Hannah Goldie. I'm not saying we have to go off to the races. I'm not saying let's chuck her in there with a Jennifer Meyer, like we're talking about, or a Miranda Maverick, which was the call out, I think. Let's not get too crazy. But let's let's give Molly McCann the flowers that she deserves here for her performance inside the octagon. We have talked all the time about how she's just a scrapper. She's just this gritty, dirty, in-your-face, aggressive, gnaw your fucking ear off if she can get hold of it fighter. She looked like a good fighter tonight. Or tomorrow, yesterday, the day before, whatever. (laughs) Well, you mentioned sort of the names that have popped up. And so Molly McCann, I don't know whether she was asked about it or if Miranda Maverick threw the name out there herself if Miranda Maverick tweeted about it and said, I, I, that's a fight I'd like certainly be down for it. ESPN did their kind of recap thing, talked about Molly and suggested if she could get a win over a Jennifer Maya or a Andrea Lee, then maybe she is in the mix and she gets somewhere. I would certainly favor the Miranda Maverick fight over the Andrea Lee, Jennifer Maya kind of fight, just in terms of let's not go you know, going from A, B to Q, let's, you know, if we can go to C or D or E, that makes a lot more sense. But I think she does deserve absolutely full marks for this effort. This was the polished, the smart, the tactical, the sound fight that I wanted to see if she could do it. And and she delivered. And she gets all the respect in the world for that. We're going to kind of blow through a bunch of these just without really stopping Volcano's Demir defeats uh, Paul Craig in the opener, 30-27 across the board. This was Paul Craig's limitations. When he cannot get you to stay on the ground with him, this is what happens. Volkan Ozdemir was smart, picked him apart on the feet when he had the opportunities to. When they got to the ground, because Paul Craig tried to drag it to the ground, he just said, no, nah, not. we're not doing this. Get up. And there were a couple times where he's down there and he lands a little bit of ground and pound and it's fine. And he just says, I'm not even going to bother anymore. I think he's officially stuffed all 15 takedowns. That's Paul Craig's limit. There's just, there's, there's a ceiling to what Paul Craig can do until he can turn those entanglements into I've kept you on the ground. This is about as high as he's going to go. Ludovic Klein and Mason Jones close out the prelims in the fight we talked about earlier that was booked sort of last minute. Ludovic Klein gets 30-27s across the board. A decent performance. He had the jumping knee that turned into a kick that was lovely. He dropped Mason Jones with a right hand in the second round that was nice. Caught it behind the ear. This to me was more a now I have big questions about Mason Jones fight than anything else. He is one and two with a no contest in four fights in the UFC. Certainly not how you want to start your tenure after being undefeated and a two-division champion in Cage Warriors. I think at 27, the next fight has to be a really strong performance or else Mason Jones is returning to Cage Warriors to see if he can win one of those two titles again. You're muted there, good good sir. I am muted. I apologize. There we are. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Mason Jones, I think, summed it up perfectly in his own tweet. He said, well, that didn't go to plan. I was off 
tempo. I got clipped and ended up two rounds down. I threw I threw a stupid triangle up and got slapped around for three minutes of round three. We'll be back. That's a that's a pretty self aware assessment. I mean, yeah, I was gonna say that's that's actually a, a good thing to hear. There were no excuses. There were no anything. It's just ah, I, I screwed up. Yeah, lads, I think I didn't do well. We'll go again. Yeah, and I do think, and and maybe this will be one of his takeaways from this is when you're in that spot and you're him and they call and say, Hey, do you want to fight? There's sometimes where discretion is the better part of valor. And if you're in that position and, and you kind of not desperately need a win, but could really stand a fight where you look good and you show all the things that had all of us excited when you came over undefeated, maybe you just say, you know what, this, this one isn't for me. Thank you boys. But I'll, I'll get on a card in August or I'll get on a card in early September, that would make more sense. Mark DeCasey wrestles the hell out of Demir Hadzovic. Uh, hopefully, there are no more commentary people in the UFC that are surprised by Mark DeCasey's ability to wrestle and grapple. This has now been 30 minutes consecutively that Mark DeCasey has shown that he can wrestle and grapple. There should be enough evidence now that people are aware. Yes, early in the career, there was a lot of flashy striking. We all remember the Timu Pakalan knockout. The man can wrestle. He has made smart business decisions. He has made smart tactical decisions to go out and get these two wins. As I said in my recap, it's amazing how a couple of wins can transform things, right? Before these victories, he's got two wins and five losses in seven fights. He now, after getting these two wins, has four wins and two losses in his last six fights made some wise choices. There's a lot you liked about this effort. Damn right. I um I like smart performances, Spencer. I uh I agree. I'm I'm all for the war. I'm all for the the beatdowns. I'm all for the back and forth brawls. I'm all for those sorts of things. I'm all for striking displays if that's if that's where your skill set lies. But Mark I think I don't know what it is. I just think he went into some striking exchanges and and maybe he's not as good of a striker as he thinks he is. Maybe he just has too much power for his own good. Maybe it's a mental lapse. Maybe it's a lack of chin. I don't, I don't know what it is, but it seems as though in fights where he isn't offering variety and he isn't uh, taking as little risk as possible, he comes unstuck against good guys. This fight against Hadzovic had, if he'd have gone in and decided to stray from the grappling game plan and taken a striking game plan, could have gone either way, right? Like Hadzovic is a good striker, but instead Mark took him down every single round, laid on him, didn't let him get back up, landed his shots, passed when he needed to pass, hold good positions, used some really beautiful grappling really beautiful dominant grappling tight waists hip rides thigh rides claw grips from straight out of the craig jones playbook dagestani handcuffs we're talking head control we're talking he hurt hadzovic's uh, left eye we're not sure what with but as soon as you notice that he just grind his face into that eye why not it's a fight do what you gotta do my friend i just when fighters come in and show you maturation, 
physical, mental, athletic maturation, it's really impressive to me. And I don't really care how it manifests itself. I don't really care if the fans in the arena, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but whether the fans in the arena had a good time watching that fight. No, no, go ahead and say it. What we saw was an elevation in Mark Diakese's personal MMA journey, but also into the lexicon of MMA. Because we're proving here what's working right now, what's efficient and effective right now. And we're telling everybody else, take a little leaf out of this book and implement that into your game. Plan. Now, one of the things you can't take out of the playbook is just being a super freak, ultra amazing athlete, right? But notice how he uses that, even that in mature spots. If the, if the perfect technique isn't quite working for him or the technique he's attempting to apply, he'll just explode through the technique and all of a sudden has a victory on his back. <laughs> right. If you've got the superpower, use it, right? It's like it's like having a special bonus and it's loading, it's loading, it's loading, and then you press it, the nitrous goes off and all of a sudden things happen. And maybe that's some of the striking. Every single thing was a nitrous shot. Every single shot was a nitrous yeah. shot, Right. And then if somebody doesn't go away or the nitrous shot sends you slightly left when you should have gone slightly right, right. Well, next thing you're getting hurt and it's you that's ending up on the bottom. So the maturation in Mark's performance, I think is the most impressive thing. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I think one of the things that has contributed to that is coming home. I think it has been good for him. I think it was good for him to go to American top team for as long as he did and get work over there and learn some stuff and be in a very good room with very good people. But I know one of the things he said was he wasn't getting the one-on-one -on -one time that he wanted. And so making that decision to come back, I think is, is a good part of it is a good piece of this that he's figured out. Okay. I've, I've bolted on some skills. I've bolted on some understanding. Now let me work closely with my team to maximize me and figure out the best way to deploy all of these considerable skills I have. And as you said, save that nitrous button for the moments when I really need it, as opposed to always. Featherweight fight, Nathaniel Wood makes his debut at 145 pounds, gets a victory over Charles Rosa, 30-26 twice, 30-27 once. This was a, I don't want to say perfect performance by any means, um, but a very good performance from Nathaniel Wood, who we hadn't seen in nearly two years, as I said, his debut at 45, 35 was hard for him to get to. Uh, he didn't look out of place. That was one of the concerns I had was, would he just look like a guy that was coming up from 40, from 35? Excuse me. He didn't. He looked solid in there the whole time. Had some very good moments. I know he is going to be the, the feature of your spotlight tomorrow on Severe MMA. What about his performance really stood out for you? So we talked about maturation for Mark Casey. There were elements of that maturation for Nathaniel Wood. And then the moments that you're talking about that maybe weren't so good were elements where he was lacking that maturation. There are two sides to Nathaniel Wood. There are two fighters balancing like a, you know, a, a, a Carl Jungian fucking theory. In we the had to get a Carl Jung. Ah, look, sure. It's two best. in the morning. What are we going to do? Right? Like the, the thing that I love about Nathaniel Wood is the first two rounds against Charles Rosa. 
He's footwork, he's in, he's out, he's available for shots, he's making you miss, he's making you pay, he's hitting the body, he's landing up top, he's landing low kicks, they're impactful shots, there's mean, visceral intentions behind those shots. And then there's the fight against Josh Reed, and there's a little bit of that in him as well. And we see that. We saw that in round three. Charles Rosa, you know... He dragged Nathaniel kicking and screaming in parts of those exchanges into a place where he really shouldn't have been, you know? I don't even think Nathaniel needed the finish here. I think the performance on it on, on its own was good enough. But I feel like the finish would have come if Nathaniel hadn't have been dragged into those slightly more war exchanges, right? Those first two rounds, Nathaniel had put so much damage on Charles Rosa that as soon as he touched his leg, Rosa was pulling guard or falling over or being timed in a half step that caused him to drop. Like something we touched on, I went to watch Cage Warriors last night, Friday night, whatever, and Lonnie Kavanagh, who's like one of Nathaniel Wood's uh, training partners, dropped his fighter six or seven times with those low calf kicks, catching him stepping and just cutting the base away. Nathaniel did the same thing to Charles Rosa, right? This is something that these guys are working on. We're seeing the fruits of the labor of this camp come out. But I just wish that Nathaniel had kept to the maturation. Another element of the maturation that we saw in that fight was the anti-grappling. Just the complete downright refusal to enter Charles, Charles Rose's guard. One of my friends mentioned, oh, like, he's not that confident because he's not going for his guard. No, no, it's the opposite. He's like, I'm not going to give you any even inkling of hope in this fight. I know I'm better than you on the feet, and I'm going to show you. That's smart, intelligent fighting. I just wish we saw a whole 15 minutes of it. Yeah, it was it was actually intelligent. I think I said it on the on the stream as it was happening. It's intelligent of Charles Rosa to get out there in the third and be shouting at him and probably calling him some names and trying to drag him into this messy, greasy, ugly fight where you can pull a little bit of that. You know, there is some dog to, to Nathaniel Wood. He does, as you said, enjoy a good fight, enjoy a good brawl. And it's 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 right to go out there and try to get him in that. And it was almost like he had a couple moments where he's like, yeah, this sounds good. Let's go. And then he went, nah, maybe I shouldn't. It's like me every night when I think, ah, should I make food here? Or should we just pick up the phone and figure something? Ah, no, I should make the food here. It's a good performance. It's a good win. It, it sets him up. We know, as we said, both in the preview and on the stream, and I know I'm reiterating those things, but I want you guys to follow all of them because we're putting the same passion that we put into this, into those things and so go and follow them as well. But we know the quality of Charles Rosa. We know what a win over Charles Rosa means. And yes, his record, again, isn't as, as beautiful as you would like it to be. But the losses are to good fighters. He is in this position to be a measuring stick, to be a litmus test because of the quality he is. Nathaniel Wood gets a very good passing grade. Very interesting to see what happens with him going forward in this division. One guy that he could fight that might be interesting it's a man that fought before him, Jonathan Pierce, who gets a second-round TKO win over Makwana Markani. It is his fourth straight win since moving to featherweight. It is a third finish in four fights. It is as much about getting the 
not so great version of Mach 1 Armarcani as it is being dominant. But I will say, really liked this effort from Jonathan Pierce. Made some smart decisions early on when Armarcani was fresh and with it and in it to sort of put him in that space to turn into the flaky Armarcani. The elbows in the in the exchange early on when Amarcani is looking to grapple the Travis Brown Hapa elbows, as I've always referred to them, call them what you will cut him open, get him bleeding. That instantly starts making him a little bit defensive, makes him start thinking, ah, gives him a reason to question whether he's going to be at his best. I'll put it that way. And from there on out, Jonathan Pierce does well. Amarcani still grapples, still looks to attack. Pierce does well to deal with those exchanges and deal with those situations. And once he gets to that second round, it's all Jonathan Pierce. He's interesting to me in this division. He's got some size. He's with a good crew at fight ready. We're seeing some improvements. We're seeing some growth and development. Like Omar Connie's not an easy out. He can be at times, but he's not an easy out. He's a guy that, you know, ask Mike Grundy. This is a good win for Jonathan Pierce, who's now somebody I think more people are going to have to pay attention to at 45. The book is written on how to beat Macron Amicani. Yep. And all Pierce had to do was stick to the game plan. Yep. And I say all he had to do because there are many, many fighters at many, many, many times that we see that do brilliantly for 75% of their game plan and then toss the rest out of the fucking window and into the lake. Or worse, and say, ah, I don't need that game plan. I've got my own ideas. Right. I'm a big guy. Watch. Yeah. Stares up at the lights 15 seconds later. <laughs> um, Watch me show you how to beat this guy. Put me in, coach. But, like, Pierce did that. And I think in the same way, I'll, I, this is a this is a two, 22 minutes past two in the morning reference, but here we go. George Hardwick last night on Friday night beat a fella that's got, I think it's Blaine Driscoll, his name, a fighter out of AKA. And when the Kyle Driscoll, Kyle Driscoll, thank you. In the very first round, George Hardwick got his nose split all the way open. I mean, leaking like a tap open, right? But not once did he dissuade from the game plan. He truly believed in the game plan that he and his coaches had put together and it got him the stoppage win in the fourth round as he predicted. George Pierce, all he had to do was keep that metal mindset and battle his way through with clearly the grappling chops that he's got as well and know and believe and just sit in and understand that Makwadamakani will fade and then you can have your chances. And he faded and he had his chances. And what he did so brilliantly is he was able to find the holes in Makwanamahani's game and then expose them. Immediately, the first shot of the fight, Makwanamahani gets to his hips, Pierce blades his stance, and lands six or seven really good elbows, obviously Conor McGregor elbows, not Travis Brown, and uh, and cuts Amekani immediately. And as you said, we're then asking questions of Amekani. It's like, well, you can taste your own blood now. You can feel it trickling down your face. What are we doing, Mr. Finland? Are we in or are we out? And to be fair to Amekani, he was like, oh, no, we're still here. We're good. We're okay. 
And then the gas tank was like, fella, knocking on the window. It's time to go. And Jonathan Pierce gets the win. Um, I think if they do that matchup, Pierce and Nathaniel Wood, uh, I think Pierce gets his leg destroyed in about half a round. And we're seeing something similar to Charles Rosso. Um, the length is going to be very interesting, but I think the um, and I think the length is going to be interesting for Nathaniel Wood as he continues up in this division. Like, can you imagine Nathaniel Wood chain Burgos? Imagine the length of that. The range in that is is a crazy, crazy idea. By the way, give me all that fight. Give me all of that fight. But the the thing I like about Pierce is his connection to a game plan. And I, again, we don't yes. talk about this enough. People going out and doing the things that they're told to do and the things that they practice for 12 weeks or whatever it is, is a real skill. So that was super impressive. Yes. Flyweight fight Mohamed Mokayev gets a unanimous decision win over Charles Johnson, 30-27s across the board. I don't think this was the performance that people necessarily wanted or expected from Mokayev. But I tell you what, I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. I think this is one of those ones that, and like it finished and he had the sad face of like, sorry, I couldn't give you more, but you know what? Three, four years from now when he's fighting in the top five of this division, this is going to be one of those ones we go back to and go, those 15 minutes against that guy that made everything difficult for you for 15 minutes was really important. Damn right. Shawnee Podcast says this all the time about experience, right? And and I was calling for it uh, prior to, to prior to the fight. I did not want to see him go out there and run this man through the cage wall in, in 15 seconds or, you know, two minutes or whatever it was. I think that these fights are really, really important for Makayev. You don't want Makayev at 22 without having grown into his, into his skeletal frame, without having grown into any semblance of his man strength, without having grown into any of his mental maturation. We don't want to see him go in and get blown out of the water by whoever is the champion at that time or you know, right. whoever is in the top five at that time. What we want, and again, I'm going to steal Sean's phrase, we want to see the best fight the best when they are the best, right? Mokayev went out tonight and learned that maybe he's not quite as good as he thought he was, but that's brilliant. Yeah. Because he goes away and he has to fix the holes that he's found. He has to realize maybe, maybe I was just a bit weaker in there tonight. Maybe I wasn't as physical as I thought I could be. Maybe I need to diversify my grappling a little bit. Maybe I need to mix things up a touch. I said this on the on, on the live stream and I'll say it again here. Mokayev's ability to, to, to strike into grappling is sublime. Absolutely sublime. Because he's another one that can be free and open with his strike. Because right. good right. luck. You want to wrestle? Super. Yeah. Exactly. You want to do some graps things? All right, bro. <laughs> Let me go and put my I'm in. On. I'm in. Do it. And, you know, uh, but but the thing that I'd like to see more of is mixing in the striking when we are grappling and when we are exiting the grappling. Because last night we saw that Mokayev can chain wrestle his ass off. But you know what gets you takedowns? Thank you, Graham, and thank you, Scroobius Pip. What gets you takedowns is striking. And what gets you striking yeah. is takedowns. And we talk all the time, and Nathaniel Wood was a great example of it. 
and there were other fights on this card that were a great example of it. If you offer dilemmas to a fighter, the brain capacity can only withstand a certain amount of dilemmas before you start to overwhelm and cause lag in reactions. It's the same as the computer CPU, and I won't do the analogy, I won't do the explanation, we'll save it for another time. But if you can overload the brain, the reaction times get slower. And Mokayev, in this fight, allowed... Uh, what's the guy's name? Charles, Charles Johnson. Johnson. Johnson, sorry, I was going to call him Jonathan. Caused Charles Johnson to be able to stay in one track of mind. One minute we were striking... The next minute we were grappling, and then we were grappling for four minutes. Right. And I'm not saying that what we didn't see from Mokayev was brilliant. There were lots of wonderful parts to that grappling. But if you are saying to a UFC caliber, whatever that means, a UFC caliber fighter, can we grapple for four minutes? The likelihood of you finishing them is low enough. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think this this doesn't do anything to me for his long-term, the way I project him long-term, and I'm somebody that thinks about prospects and, and fighters when they arrive in the UFC in, like, five years from now kind of terms. I mean, dependent on age, but, like, he's 21. And so I'm thinking about who is it, who is this guy and where is he at 27? Okay, well, he's at or near the very top of this division. That's where I think he's going to be when he's 27. But now the road there is longer than I think he would have wanted it to be. But I think it's ultimately a good thing. I think it is ultimately like there is nothing wrong about having a performance like this. It's actually probably quite full of good things at the end of the day. I hope all of his coaches just get him in the back. And when he says, ah, you know, I'm really sorry. They go, no, no, Mo, look, it's fine. First and foremost, you won. You had good moments. You suplexed the dude a couple of times, which we don't see often. Straight up suplex city. But there's also some stuff that we get to work on now. And there's some stuff we can look to improve. And so instead of trying to hustle out and get a third fight in October and then maybe a fourth fight in December or January, pump the brakes. Let's put six months into the gym, into working on these things, into dealing with these things, into creating some of those as you're talking about transition situations where we're doing the grappling and then we're going back to the striking and then I'm making you think about the submission and now we're back to the grappling. Like, this is a good thing. Long-term, you are still the best prospect, in my opinion, in the UFC. This is still a good good effort, a good performance, a good moment and will only serve him well going forward. And split your time and go back to ATT. Yeah, 100%. First three fights on the card... No disrespect to anybody there. It is 2.30 in the morning for Harry, so we're going to skip through them real quick. Jai Herbert gets a needed win over Kyle Nelson. As we talked about a little earlier with Mark Casey, he's now officially 2-1 two and three, two and one in his last three fights, as opposed to being 1-2 and two in his last three fights. So I think Jai lives to, to fight another day. This was a smarter matchup, a better matchup in terms of what he's been given beforehand. He got a very rough intro to the UFC. Victoria Leonardo gets a win over Mandy Baum. I don't think any of us really watched it. We were just talking about stuff on the stream. And Nicholas Dalby gets a win in the opener over Claudio Silva. 29-28, the, the 10-8 round shouldn't have been a 10-8 round. He didn't dominate him that much in the second round. It was just, you know, a good round, a good win for Nicholas Dalby, who, as we talked about on the on the stream, 
is just sort of one of those perfect, like he's the guy I talk about all the time as the perfect ecosystem fighter. He's the guy you need to keep those divisions moving forward. He's not going to be a champion. He's not going to be probably even in the top 15, but he's perfect for fights like this against fellow veterans, against some of the guys he's fought before, Trinaldo, things like that. And he's the perfect test for maybe one Ian Gary next time out. I'm going to just, uh, just touch a little bit on, um, on, on Claudio Silva. Like, of course I, I know Claudio personally. Right. And one of my fondest memories of Claudio is, uh, I used to do a little bit of, uh, teaching at, at the gym. I used to train at. I used to cover for a kickboxing guy and Claudio came in once and saw me, saw me showing some, like one of my favorite kicks when I was kickboxing was a turning side kick, right. Or a spinning hook kick, one of the two. And, um, and after the end of the class, like he waited around, he waited around and said to me, like, can you show me that? And I'm like, uh, really? You want me to show you that? And he's like, yeah. So I showed it him and he was like, that's fucking awesome. Thanks. And I was like, okay, bro. And like, ever since then he'd come into train and or he'd come in to cover a class and he'd come and he'd shake my hand. He'd ask me how I was and ask me how my training was and all that stuff. Um, so to see, to see him go and perform in the way that he performs, this is the story of, of Claudio in the last three fights, right? The Danny Roberts fight, the Dalby fight. This is, this is who he is. And did he fight Court McGee before this? He did, yeah. Yeah, it's the Court McGee fight. It's the same. He has seven minutes where he looks like an absolute world beater. You know, he had Dalby in all sorts of trouble in bountiful situations. And then just something happens. And then and even in the third, he, he did have moments where I think we were all talking during the stream of like, Nicholas Dalby has let this fight be closer than it should be 100%. because he allowed Claudio Silva to do things that he's good at. But like, Claudio has two settings, it seems. One is like switched on, focused, full of gas, like just really, really, really solid. And then the gas falls off and he's just the kid from the favela who has no food to eat and is just the toughest guy in the fucking room. And that's who he is. Like, make no bones about it. Like, he is the toughest kid in the room from the favela with no fucking food to eat, right? That's who Claudio is. And that stops him from getting finished in these fights because he's just so fucking right. tough, man. And yeah, okay, we, ha we, can, we can talk about the fight IQ of Dalby until the cows come home, whatever. But just the sadness of watching Claudio look so good and just not being able to do the thing. And he's 38 now or whatever he is. He's been fighting a long time. He took seven years out of the UFC and, and you know, whatever it is. But it's just, you know, this game, we, we talked about it with Gustafsson. Yep. This game is a tough old game. And, and to watch somebody that I know and have a personal relationship with go out like that is, you know, it's, 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 it's tough. Not, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, you mentioned Court McGee, right? I have a very personal relationship with Court. To watch him in his last fight, the first time he's been put all the way out, and sit there and think, okay, well, I like, yep. Everybody's cheering that this is a great knockout. And all I'm thinking about is he's got three boys at home and one of them's not even two yet. Okay. Get up. Okay. You're up. Fine. Good. All right. You're in the back. Okay. You're fine. Great. All right. It's tough. There are, there are moments in this sport and, and truthfully, I think that's the best way to sum up this card. There are moments in this sport that are just tough. 
Sometimes it's tough for personal reasons. Sometimes it's tough because it's just not the best card in terms of action. Sometimes it's tough because, you know, the people you want to see win don't necessarily perform or, you know, the ins and outs of this sport that make it tough to follow at times. But we still love it because because when it's right and when it's magic, it's it's beautiful. When you get Patty Pimblett walkouts, it's beautiful. When you get Molly McCann showing the, the improvement and the maturation she showed, it's beautiful. And those are the biggest takeaways from the second trip to London this year in 2022 for the UFC. It is getting on towards 3 o'clock in the morning in London. We are taping this after the show if you haven't figured it out yet. So that Harry can have a Sunday with his his dear Mrs. Get Well Soon in me. So we're going to end it here. We appreciate your time. If you're just listening to this on the newsletter site, on the Substack site, you can go and check out the video version and see what me and Harry look like. You can see what Harry looks like at nearly three in the morning in London. You can see the lovely overlay that he made for our feed. Either way, we appreciate you tuning in and checking us out and supporting us all this time. We will be back next Sunday, as always, to talk about whatever transpires at UFC 277. Until then, have yourselves a wonderful week. Be good to yourselves. Be good to your loved ones. Know that you're loved. Know that we appreciate you. As Patty Pimblett said, if you're struggling with anything, reach out to a friend. Reach out to somebody. We are here. I am here. My DMs are always open. Twitter, Twitter, email. It's, it's pretty easy to track me down. I'm around. Get at me. We love you. We appreciate you. Thank you for listening.